Today's episode is a live recording from March 9th with respiratory leader Libby Perkins to discuss critical access hospitals and problem solving. What do you do when you know you'll never have enough resources? More on that in a minute. This is RT Sidebar. Stay tuned. Yeah, welcome to RT Sidebar. As you know, uh, in our show notes, we have links to recommend people, and uh, we don't know who recommended you, but we have spoken in the past, and I'm glad they did, because you have a lot to talk about as a former RT director. I uh, listened to you, (laughs) and I I had it easy. Even as, as hard as I thought I was having it, nothing compares to what you were going through. Um, so yeah, give us a little background on where you're at in the country and what kind of hospital you have, because it's very interesting. I am, excuse me, I've got 10 years in, I'm working on my 11th year as an RT. I am currently located out of Batesville, Mississippi. So we're about an hour south of Memphis, right here in the Delta. Um, I am the director of respiratory at Panola Medical Center, and then also the director of respiratory at our sister facility, which is a critical access facility, Quitman Community Hospital. It's in Marks, Mississippi. Um, we currently are a small corporation. We are functioning off probably, I think we're up to six um, facilities, but we're all critical access and rural. My Panola campus is a rural hospital. Equipment is critical access. So they function similar, not the same. So, for our listeners, what is a critical access and, and how would you best describe that to someone who's only worked in a general acute care or subacute care? You know, before I actually got to see a, a critical access, I couldn't even imagine it. So for us that had never walked in, uh, what's it like? Well, if you can imagine level one trauma centers probably take one hallway of one floor and there's your critical access facility <laughs> um, and take your major parts that you need. And, and that's what you have, literally. So you are limited to your number of beds. You are not allowed to have specialists and you're only allowed to keep these inpatients for a certain time period. So 96 hours is your limit. Um, at that point, they have to be transferred to a higher level of care or discharged home. Um, you are able to have um, secondary treatments in that critical access hospital. For instance, equipment, um, we have swing beds. So we're approved for six swing beds. And at Panola, we are also approved for swing bed, but we also have an LTAC that is subleased on the backside of our facility that we service as well. Um you're working with an ER pretty much. You're bare bone staffed. You've got radiology lab, respiratory and nursing and one physician. So you're you're working with your bare minimal resources um, compared to my rural facility, which we have a little more. We're a nine bed ER on the rural facility side and we have 76 licensed beds. So you go from a three bed ICU equipment to a nine bed and you you think you're living a dream. But yeah, just scale down everything you thought you knew about providing care for these patients in larger facilities um, and hello to critical access. You know, I I scale down the size, but I scale up the complexity, right? Because 
all these hospitals with all these resources, they really don't have it as bad as they think they do. I mean, you know, they they have staffing shortages, but what's staffing like in a critical access hospital? Critical access you're st- and rural also, you're staffing one therapist per shift. Every once in a while when your productivity numbers hit, um, whatever yours is set for your facility, you might get lucky and get to add in a second therapist there for the day shift or a mid shift strictly for med rounds or anything like that. But your independency and your assertiveness have to be there for you to be a sole therapist in in a facility. Um, Critical Access does not staff RTs at night. So there again, you are responsible for wonderful and thorough education with the nursing staff and the lab staff is 24 hours to be able to, you know, help them be able to take care of those patients after 7 p.m. Um, I'm on call for emergency purposes. I do live 30 minutes away from that facility, but you you just have to learn really to make it work, to be honest with you. I would love for some of these uh, therapists, you know, at much larger level one and level two trauma centers to when they think they're having a bad day because, you know, three of their ventilators are broken, but they still have 26 other ones that are, you know, in in use to not having a ventilator at all. So um, for the first six months that equipment was open, I did not have a ventilator. We do not have wall air um, in that facility. So most of your ventilator units that are manufactured now have internal compressors and they don't require wall air. But then again, your expense of it. We can't go spend $60,000 on a Hamilton vent um, simply because it has an internal compressor. So you kind of have to start moving your your way around things. So we do have a transport vent now, the Revels, and it's perfect for a facility of that size. But then again, you know, you're doing your basics. That ventilator is not going to be able to provide a high complexity mode of ventilation um, because it's just not built for that. But you you have to use with what is within your standard. So staffing one therapist uh, is still got to be challenging. I mean, where do you find that one therapist? Especially, I mean, because how far are you from the next biggest city? Our largest facility closest to us is going to be about 40 miles Y'all, I'm not very good with my north, south, east, and east and west. So there, it's going to be a Baptist facility that um, is our higher level acuity care facility that's closest to us. Um, they're functioning with ICU cardiology, right? I mean, uh, pulmonology, uh, all of nephrology, you know, all of your your big stuff, which is where we transfer a lot of our patients to that require a higher level of care, but. Um, I guess when you're from an area like this, and I've lived in a rural area my entire life, you're used to things being a lot smaller and a lot scaled down than what a metropolis area is used to. So I had about six months at a larger facility before I came to my current facility, and I've been here for nine years, where I was double staffed and triple staffed, you know, with other therapists that were there handling ICU, ER, cardiac ICU, all of the above, I kind of, you catch yourself where you're leaning on them, you know, oh, okay, I can't really, I've done all I know to do. Like, let me bounce this off of you and see if you have a better suggestion for me. That's not the case with critical access in rural. I'm here by myself. I'm relying on myself. Um, 
of course, I'm here with my day shift staff and they can come to me, you know, with anything and we'll, we'll fix it. My night shift staff knows that I'm always available by phone. And I was lucky enough with directors prior to me when I was a staff therapist that I had the same availability with them. But you come into it knowing what what it's going to be. And and I think in the interviewing process, when I'm explaining these things to potential new hires, if you're kind of on the fence about it, it's not for you then. Critical right. access is not for the faint of heart at all. And and I and I believe you. I mean, just listening to you, and then you know, I've I've been a staff, and you you're given a treatment, and then a nurse calls you for a second treatment. Oh, let me just call someone else to go do that treatment. But and you're the only person. That's a very difficult task to manage, and requires a special therapist. Matt, I mean, you you've been a director. What do you what are you thinking? So, um. When we talked to Libby before, we, we, we kind of chatted about this a little bit, Libby. When I first got out of school, I went to a small hospital on purpose because there's something that is the same that you have at a critical access hospital that we have at the big city hospitals. We have no idea what's walking in that door. But the big city hospitals have all the equipment. They have lots of other people. You have you and your small group of people that you trust next to you. And you, you have to manage a burn. You have to manage a trauma. You have no idea what's coming in there. And to be honest, from my aspect, it's probably the best decision I made in my career was to go to a small hospital because I had to get gain the confidence. I had to learn how to rely on people. Libby, I mean, you don't have all the bells and whistles but I'm sure your staff is really strong. And I bet you the people around you are really strong because you just never know. Talk about, talk about that a little bit. Talk about what it's like to be prepared for the unknown with not a lot of resources. Well, I will tell you, um, critical access will build a heck of a foundation for you as an RT. You, you will reach the point where you don't need to rely on anyone else. Um, you become strong. You become confident. You have to know that your your end goal is still the same as everybody else's end goal. That patient has to be taken care of and that patient has to leave there, transfer to a higher level facility in the best condition that they can be. Um, the staff that that I, I've been extremely lucky, I'll say that, um, in having independent women staffed with me that I didn't really have to question their judgment. They were all strong therapists too. Um, I just stress the relationships that you have with your coworkers in that critical access hospital. You've got one RN, a lab tech, myself, and a radiology tech and a physician. So in the middle of a code or a trauma, everybody has to know their role. But in those roles, you are functioning to your entire scope of practice, your whole scope of practice. You're not standing in line behind a resident or, you know, anybody else. You have to be ready to pull the trigger on everything that you know. And the same for the nursing staff and the relationship that you have with each other has to be a strong relationship too within the work environment because I have to trust you. I have to know that you are going to take care of this patient just as well as I am. If I can start an IV within my scope of practice in my state, that's what we're fixing to do. 
You know, we don't have pharmacy there after 4 p.m. My RN's got to go mix her meds. I mean, if we're hanging an EpiDrip or a Cardizium or anything like that, or even pulling sedation, you know, you ha- they have to trust that you're going to take care of the patient while they can go do their job too. And that that is the same for us too. You know, it's great to be able to pull radiology over to bag so I can, you know, get my blood gas ran because I'm having to bag with one hand and, you know, running a blood gas on this epoch over here with the other and multitasking becomes your best friend. You know, there's an old management philosophy that you hire for personality and you you can train to the skill. Uh, But that might be a little um, of a luxury in this case, right? Because you can't just take a new grad and and then put them into the situation. So what does that RT that you want to hire look like? Your personality is secondary to me. Um, as long as you're not being ugly or rude or disrespectful, um, we can we can handle that at the end of the day. I need your skill set to be at an A and an A plus preferably. Um, it's great. And every once in a while, you will find a new grad who's green, but so willing to learn. And I'm lucky to have one of those right now. Man, she's just taking the bull by the horns, and I, I couldn't ask for a better student coming fresh out of school, not knowing anything else, and every day is still a learning aspect for her to go into a night shift rotation solely, you know, after six, seven weeks of orientation and rocking it. It's just trusting that I have the correct judgment on these new hires um, to know if you're going to fit or not. And at a time where we're so short-staffed and um, in some some growing pains, you hate to be choosy, but but honestly, I am because just just like you said, I can't mold you. I can't take a year to mold you into the therapist that I need. I really need you to be there when you come on board with me. Have you ever run into a situation? Uh where someone wasn't pulling their weight because that the impact of that is just magnified. It affects your entire team. Yeah. Um, so how do you handle that? Because it, if you have to terminate, <laughs> now you're a person short. That That's tough. That's where I, I come in and I, I'm, I'm filling every empty shift on the schedule, uh, which is currently where we're at right now, just because of the staffing, staffing shortage. But yes, in a small department like this, where you are the sole therapist each shift, you know, if you've got one that is really not pulling their weight and it's draining each person that they're given a report to, you know, and that person, it affects the next therapist. And then it affects the therapist coming in behind them. It's just not a good team aspect at all. I need everybody pulling their weight 100%. Um, and of course, every day is not going to be 100% for everybody. Everybody's going to have bad days and and that's okay. You know, every once in a while is perfectly okay. That's human. Um, but in the event, I mean, I you have to terminate. There's really, you know, no nice way to say about it. That's the part of our job that I think every director could probably agree with me on is you want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. You do. And after you've educated and educated and educated until you're blue in the face, there comes a point, though, where where I've given you all I can give you and it's still not working. 
Um, and it's affecting my entire team. And, and you have to let them go. But also knowing that, I know that I'm going to have to step up and, and fill all of these rotations, which um, I, I'm a firm believer in you lead by example. So if my staff doesn't see me jumping in, willing to sacrifice, you know, time at home or, or anything like that, then they're not going to think or give the amount of loyalty. It, it's a straight lead by example type of thing. So, you know, staff will leave, not always from termination, just because they move or find another job. So what is the recruiting um, practice and then how do you retain staff? So burnout, I think we talked about this the last time I spoke with you guys. Burnout is a real thing. Um, COVID, you know, ran rampant over staff. You thought you worked hard before if you picked up two shifts, two extra shifts a week, you know, to Working is literally as much as your body could take it. And um, I had two really great therapists in my department that have recently had complete career change moves. Um, and, you know, it it sucks really on, on my end as a director because they were two really good, strong therapists. And I saw the best in them every single shift that they were there. And they just diverted to, you know, completely different career paths. and. I have to support them because I tell my staff every day, you know, you have to take care of yourself and your house first. This job is second. Um, I'm the pot calling the kettle black on that also because I don't I don't <laughs> follow that at all. But um, you have to move straight forward then. You know, I, I miss them every day knowing, though, that I've got to to cover the empty positions and FTE positions that I have. So you immediately move into okay, what resources can I go to right now? We don't have a huge pool of therapists in this geographical area, you know, to pull from. We've got a couple of community colleges around here that turn out grads in May. Okay, but once again, it's extremely difficult for a critical access facility to take on a green new grad with no experience except clinical experience. So there again, your bar is even lower. So your pool becomes smaller. So you result to, you know, externally posting the position, Indeed, Facebook, any type of social media, and hope that this person, excuse me, will talk to this person and that you will get a call back or anyone showing interest. Um, But then again, when you find a candidate that you think is going to be the perfect fit, when they get here, as much as I'm trying to sell them, and if I do love their personality, they may be on the end where critical access and rural care, healthcare might not be for them. So there you are at square one all over again. And you just have to remain positive too. I've been in this um, staffing struggle for about three months now, which I'm extremely lucky. I know there are facilities out there and directors out there that have been facing a staffing shortage, you know, for for years now because of COVID. Um, I got lucky. I had a 95% retention for staffing during COVID. And just within the last three or four months, did we really kind of start having some turnover? So my problem is small, I guess, in the the whole grand scheme of things, but you you just can't sit on it. And I hate to make people feel like I'm not acknowledging or, or, you know, sympathetic to the fact that they're not staying or here. Um, you just, 
man, if I could find a group and duplicate the staff that I've been lucky enough to have over the last two or three years, it would be every director's dream. You know, it, you are lucky if you do have good staff, but the staff staying um, probably has something to do with you. Uh, so I wouldn't call that luck. I mean, you are doing something right. Um, you know, what they say is that staff leave managers. They don't leave the, you know, the organization. So if they're staying, they're staying because you created something worth staying. So, you know, give yourself some credit there. I think that's a fantastic job. Uh, but then what about the other resources? I remember during COVID, I couldn't get a lot of supplies. I was losing out on, uh, I was getting beat out by an entire state. For example, I was trying to buy PPE for the hospital and the vendor came back and returned my check and said, sorry, Texas bought this. Right. You know, and that was a decent sized hospital. That's magnified again when your critical access. How did you get supplies during COVID? I mean, that had to have been a nightmare. That and transferring patients, finding an available and open ICU bed and trying to get this, you know, critically ill patient to a higher level of facility so they can get everything they need to survive in a critical access hospital that's three beds, you know, and and you're sitting here holding this ICU patient with one ER nurse, an RT, and a radiology tech. So and still expected to have, like I said earlier, the same outcome that the ICU would be expected to have in the transferring and receiving facility. So that resource alone is damaging at some points. I mean, you're holding these patients for out, days can be, you know, in this small little three bed ER with pool curtains. So, you know, we're not even talking about three separate rooms with doors that close. This is one large room with, with pool curtains to make three beds. The allocation of supplies in itself is a whole conversation. Um, this critical access facility, Equipment Community Hospital, was actually open during COVID. So we took a you know brand new entity with zero allocation history and are trying to open up you know vendor accounts. And they're saying, okay, well, HMEs, I'm sorry, but they went on allocation and your allocation is zero because you have no previous history of purchasing them or ET tube holders. Okay, well, you know, your account shows that usually you order, you know, a box a month or, or two boxes every six months or whatever the case may be. Okay, well, now you can get, you know, six individual units or, you know, anything like that. Nebs, aerosol mask vent circuits, um, things that just, that you've got to have, but your, you know, your allocation is zero. So it's like, huh, figure out a way. So then you kind of have to start rewilling where your brain is going in your direction and figure out how am I going to fix this? I have to find a solution to this. It's not just going to come out of thin air. So you start seeing what you can move around. Um, what vendor can I purchase this particular vent circuit from, okay, well, guess what? We're not getting this one. We're going to have to make do with the one that we can get an allocation of. Um, and it may be, you know, one that's not named brand. It's probably going to be a universal circuit, you know, um, or who can I borrow from? So I, I was lucky enough when we opened this facility to have my parent hospital, Panola, 
pretty much duplicating um, what supplies I was going to be utilizing at the critical access hospital to where I was in a situation where I could borrow. Um, and, and there you go. There's my answer for that. So, you know, next problem. Okay. So that was the vent circuit and the ET tube holders. Bougies, ET tubes, LMAs, you know, everything that you have to have for an emergency situation is not available to you. So what are you going to do? You, you just have to start moving towards, I don't have time to dwell on it. We have to find a solution. So what I really love about respiratory in our field is the, the people that go into it, we are creative uh, and, and we like to put things together. What were you doing? Uh, you were having to, to build stuff, I'm sure, uh, with the limited resources. Well, I will tell you, actually, thank goodness it never reached the point where I was actually having to build things or, or cut and add and tape and, you know, create my own wires for these vent circuits or anything like that. Um, I hope that whomever was out there that have, was in that situation patented <laughs> what they um, <laughs> what they came up with because there's their retirement plan. But um, I, I, I can't answer that because I wasn't in a situation where I was having to to really make anything. Um, it was really just figuring out where, how, and when could I get my hands on, on these supplies? Um, there were a few times where there's a facility about 30 or 40 miles south of us, the ET tubes, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I've ran out of ET tube holders and I have zero allocation. You know, we're, we're limited to two boxes a month and I use the first box in the first week of the month. So, you know, can we, we can tape them of course, but I was lucky enough that she's from a much larger parent facility to where we could, um, and she had, of course, much more allocation than I am that she could loan for me to use, um, until I could get my next allocation and, and repay her and take them back to her. That was um, priceless to me because there again, you know, I'm taking care of my hospital and she's taking care of hers, but she was willing to work with me on helping me out, you know, with my supplies because we both have to take care of these patients. That's interesting. Hey, um, Jonathan, you were talking about Texas. Libby, I'm going to apologize from the state of Pennsylvania. I think I might have hoarded every HME possible <laughs> at my hospital. So for your lack of HMEs, I'm going to apologize now. Uh, but I, I, I'm so impressed with your ability to innovate, right? You had to think outside the box. And it's interesting because we as respiratory therapists look at these big academic facilities on how to innovate. Maybe we should be asking more of hospitals like you on how to innovate because you're required to innovate. That's their choice. So I just, just a quick comment and I wanted to apologize, but uh, like, I, I'm just super impressed with the ability to innovate at your facility. Um, I'm going to haunt you in your, in your restaurant <laughs> drinks. No, um, I, I've, I've just been really lucky that I have an upper administration that listens to me when I speak and that have given me the opportunity to prove myself in what I can bring to the table. So when I reach really critical times where um, I need help, because I, I'm the first one to tell you, I'll take it on all by myself and I'll, I won't ask for help. I will figure out a solution and nobody will even know, you know, that I, I was in a struggle. It's just, 
daily, you know, I'll continue my daily routine. But if there has ever been a point where, hey, listen, I have to have this supply and, you know, Medline says I'm at my max for allocation and I've exhausted all resources I've got to have some help. I was lucky enough to be able to have them step up and say, okay, what do you need? And I can tell them, hey, listen, this is where I have found the supply and this is how much it costs. And yes, you know, it's three or four times what I would be paying for it from my regular vendor, but I I have to have it. And they say I can have 10 of them. Okay. You know, let's do it, put the rec in and let's approve it and let's, let's get your supply in here. And I do feel like in a critical access facility and a smaller rural facility, we probably have the upper hand um, versus a director in a much larger facility where you can't be heard as well. Um, you're you're consistently, you know, having to go to schedule a meeting with your upper administration, trying to get things moved forward, new policies, things to MEC, PNT, whatever it may be. And it's a whole process here. I see you every day. I see my administration multiple times a day. They're not getting away from me. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have to necessarily, you know, go through large hoops and, and leaps to get things done that are important. So that is a definite plus to critical access. So, you know, it has its benefits and then it has its cons too. It's taking the good with the bad. And, and nothing anywhere is ever going to be perfect. Um, and I, I think a lot of people are kind of realizing that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And I just, man, I just wish that, that everybody could experience the relationships that you have in a critical access hospital and a rural hospital versus, you know, your bigger hospitals. You can walk down the hall and I, I know everybody here's name. Um, I'm Everybody, I know EVS, night shift. I can walk by anybody in this hospital and know their name. If I worked in a larger facility, upper administration's not going to know my name. Upper administration, you know, may be like, hey, I need to see the respiratory director this week at some point to talk about why she was in overtime on her budget. My administration already knows, you know, I'm super short staffed. There is no question as to why. Uh, was in overtime on my budget. They know. They know every functioning aspect of my department. So COVID sounded like it was very difficult for you because I know it was for everyone else. How did you take care of yourself? How did you keep yourself going during COVID? Y'all, I said earlier, that's a pot calling the kettle black. I stress to my staff all the time about, hey, you've got to take time for you. You know, use your PTO. That's why we accumulate it for a reason. And I'm the very one who, you know, will max out on PTO and and I need to take off. And then I'm still sitting there saying, okay, well, I could technically still work Monday and Tuesday. And then I would only be taking 24 hours of PTO. But um downtime, downtime's hard to find, especially as a leader. You know, your phone and your email are are always accessible and you kind of have to start boundaries to where, okay, you know, six o'clock PM is going to be my shutoff for replying to any emails or, you know, the text message that I received at 11 o'clock last night, you know, it it will be answered tomorrow at 8 AM or, you know, when I get to my office, 
but I, I'm a traveler and um, oddly, uh, we love Disney World around here. So um, anytime I get the chance that I can take a few days away, it, it's mentally good for me too. Um, I worry about, you know, my staff and everything they have going on at home. And as a leader in a smaller facility, you have to, your staff has to become your family too. And you have to take care of these these staff. I keep wanting to say my girls, um, but you do. You have to be there for every aspect. If they need off because their child is sick, they're going to have the day off and be with their child. I'm going to come in and I'm going to cover the shift. Um, and that is a lucrative benefit of critical access in smaller facilities is, you know, the pay is not going to be that competitive with these larger facilities. I can't pay what Vandy's paying, you know, their RTs an hour, but you know, you're going to make what's important. If your child has a Christmas program at 10 a.m., go to the Christmas program. I'll cover for two hours. You know, go to your kid's football game. Go to your child's basketball game. I'm going to know your kids' names too. You have to have a relationship and establish a report with your staff because then they'll trust you. And if they're trusting you, they're going to help you and you're going to help them. It's a give-give, you know, situation. But relationships are have to be on a solid foundation. And I don't think I would have made it through COVID with my staff if those relationships had not been there. You know, I knew that they were working hard and, and I had to work hard too. It, it was a group effort. I think I may have went to a year and a half without even taking off um, any PTO. Uh, and that's a downside, you know, critical access. You don't have a plethora of staff to pull from to cover. You don't have an assistant director. Um, I don't I don't just have people at will to take call for me for me to to go on vacation or to be away for a few days. So that's a, a struggle where I have to figure out, OK, what's important, you know, what's important. So you, you, you don't have the, the, the staff for 24 seven coverage, but there are those things like virtual respiratory therapists who can manage ventilators. Uh, I mean, would that something like that be beneficial for you? Actually, I didn't even know that that was anything that was offered currently. But of course, then again, it comes down to an expense. How expensive is this telemedicine, you know, service um, where the ER physician and the RN can technically, you know, make the decisions and call the shots? I know every state, the scope is not the same, you know, for, for RNs, but it would all come down to the expense of it. Would I be open to the idea? Absolutely. Cause you know, we want to support RTs no matter what, but if my budget is, you know, a couple of thousand dollars from being met and I need, let's say a second ventilator, I'm going to choose the second ventilator over paying for an RT, you know, telemedicine to, to manage the vent while I'm not there. Because you know your your budget's a lot smaller, and I and I'm working with a lot a lot less than you know what your your larger facilities are looking at. My critical access facility does not have high flow at all. We have the one transport vent, and and it can bypass. That's it. Now my rural facility, we've got five vapotherm high flow units, and we're running Draker ventilators over here and Phillips vents and back there in the LTAC, but. You have to start to prioritize what's important. So you said you couldn't have like a specialist 
um, in the critical access. Does that include telehealth? I'm really not sure. And I, I need to clarify on that too. Um, you can't have an in-house specialist. So you can have IP programs where um, cardiology can have clinic there, you know, once a week or ortho, nephrology, um, podiatry, psych. You can have all those um, outpatient programs, but you can't have them housed in your facility is full time. Um, telemedicine does e- exist in the emergency room. We partner with the University Hospital here in Mississippi, and they are available for the providers to be able to consult in the event that they they need extra. Um, it's great; they're on demand, you know, twenty four hours a day, and it's a click of a button, and they're right there in the room with you. And that is a partnership with our University Hospital here. That is an amazing help. Uh, one thing I, I have to touch on because it's it's so important. So who opened the doors at your facility? So we acquired this critical access hospital smack during the middle of COVID. Um, and it had been closed for five years. So um, it's a cool little backstory on it. The certificate of need was going to expire within the next 30 days from the day of our acquiral of it. So our um, upper administration had to compile a team that was going to get this door open within 30 days. And keep in mind, like I said, the doors have been closed for five years. There was still equipment. This hospital had not been touched. So we were literally starting from the floor up. Um Making things happen, I think, when we slept, to be honest with you, long, long hours, cleaning, putting, you know, bedside tables together, organizing your equipment, making sure that you had to have everything that the state requires you to, you know, not being able to have this. Okay, well, I have 10 days left until my door opens. So what is my next move on being able to get this right here done? So that was a Massive struggle, but probably one of my proudest um, accomplishments was being able to be part of a team that took a empty building, pretty much an abandoned hospital and having it patient ready, you know, state regulated within 30 days. So I'm going to want to bring Matt in on this one. And in the hospital, Matt, what could you possibly do in 30 days? I mean, she opened up critical access. What could you even do in a hospital? At a a large academic hospital that I worked at, Libby, I might get a policy done in 30 days. (laughs) (laughs) And you're opening a brand new hospital. Like, that's insanity. Like, oh, my. Like, I couldn't even imagine. When you told us this story, it was insane. Lisa just put it in the chat. You must do a presentation at ARC about this story. Because nobody would believe it. Like, but holy cow. And to me, and what that does, it really shows me more than anything else. That's leadership. That is loyalty. That is collaboration. Those key words that we use as leaders are the things that matter. And when you have people you can trust and you're loyal to those people, anything can happen. Maybe not at my old facility, but <laughs> a little bit of red tape. You have zero red tape where you're at, which is awesome. But I'm just so, so impressed and so motivated by your abilities. That's just so cool. I will say that um, I went into this completely blind. I had absolutely no experience with critical access at all. And in a smaller facility like that, you know, you're not just RT, 
in your your RT role, you know, you have to be coding and billing. You know, you're you're building your charge masters. You're it is start to finish. And most of the time, those things are done for you already when you step into that leadership position. So I was having to learn what can critical access build, you know, I mean, build for, you know, how long can these patients stay there? Well, I'm not used to a patient only being able to be with me for 96 hours. There was no guidebook. There was no playbook. We were completely blindfolded going into this. So it was a learn as you go type of situation. And not to toot our own horns, but I I don't know another group of people that I could have done it with um, and done it well. You know, it, it wasn't a scrap together type of thing. We actually did it and we did it well. That's not being, you know, boastful or anything like that. But the fact is, is that we gave a community that had no access to emergency health care. They were 30 minutes minimum drive to their closest emergency room. We came in in 30 days during the middle of a global pandemic from start to finish and gave this community access to emergency medicine again. And, 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 and Libby, if I remember, wasn't that in your hometown? It was. It's my hometown. Sure is. That would be the facility that if, you know, my grandparents or a parent of mine, you know, had an accident or something happened, that's their first line of um, medicine that they're 10 minutes away. They'll be there. Um, That's who's going to be taking care of my family. That's going to be taking care of, you know, old school teachers. Um, That's going to be the the facility that's taking care of my best friend's grandmother or, you know, it's it's very personal. And that is another huge plus to critical access and rural health care. You're going to know a lot of these patients. And and when you know someone personally, what happens? You tend to care a little more about the level of service that you're providing them. So if, you know, you care about these people, you're going to care for them even more than you would just a, a, a bystander. But the you, thing is, is there's yeah. no bystanders because, you know, everybody in a rural, rural community like that. So everybody means something to you. Yeah, everybody, um, everybody's a VIP, right? That's exactly right. Like that's that, exactly right. But isn't that how we should be practicing medicine, even in the big hospitals? Oh, I agree. 100%. Just saying, right. Oh, that's just, oh, I, I, I love it. You're making my heart full. I appreciate it. You know, you get that one-on-one patient time um, a lot more frequently because you might only have five patients to take care of today versus everybody being a number because, you know, you've got 60 Q6 treatments to turn around and then you've turned around and you have, you know, another 45 more Q4s directly behind it. Your mindset at that point is not just taking care of the patient, but you're having to make sure that you're doing everything in a timely manner too. And every patient's not getting truly what they deserve. And, and, you know, it just comes down to a productivity type of thing. And that's huge for me in critical access. I want to be able to know my patient's stories. I, w- I want to be able to know, do they have grandkids that are coming to see them today? You know, let's get them up and in the bedside chair. Let's do trade care first thing this morning. So that when their grandkids do get here after lunch, you know, they're getting to see their grandmother, or gr- their grandfather at their best for that day. You know, it, it's a much more personal report type of thing. So critical access hospitals are incredibly important to me 
Same reason they work for you. My dad lives uh, in West Tennessee. The only hospital uh, accessible to him is a critical access and it's closed. And uh, it didn't close for good reasons. So, uh, I mean, you've obviously studied up on everything there is uh, about critical access. So what does the future look like for critical access? Because there's a lot of people that rely on this. I, um, I learn something new every day. So there, I, I tried to do my, my best research that I could on critical access when we were starting. And it's so much that it really, it's like a rabbit hole. You, you know, you could fall down into it and be there for weeks at a time. And I can't wait to know even more um, about it versus, you know, rural, it, it in itself is separate and completely different than rural healthcare. Um, learning. Gosh, y'all, I could go down, go down into this rabbit hole with y'all on this part, but trying to get my words together too, because there's just, golly, there's so many avenues that you can take and what is so important, you know, billing and coding is, is so important to this because it is completely separate and I'm not up to date on CPT and ICD-10 codes because that's generally not something that I deal and see every day, but I know that um, if I'm intubated, if I intubated a patient in the emergency room and we did blood gases and um, the whole workup treatments and CPT and everything in the world, my charge rate is done by me, which means that there is nobody else behind me except the coder who's going to be coding out the bill and sending it. So I have to complete everything and make sure that it's top notch A plus or ready to go when it is sent to them. So you start getting your bill selection reports and showing outstanding things. And you're like, oh, wow. Okay, wait a minute. I noticed that, you know, radiology dropped the charge for this chest x-ray. Okay. What about maybe if we can bundle it with my vent bundle over here for critical access, but it not affect my payout charge on it? Because at the end of the day, the hospital still has to make money to survive, right? Your bills still have to be able to be paid. Medicare and Medicaid, you get a reimbursement on these patients with them being critical access. What about your self-pay patients? What about your private insurance patients? You hope that they're going to pay, be honest, you know, and pay their bill. Okay, well, if they don't, you're in the hole on that patient. You can't deny them access to care. You have to take care of these patients, but you're taking care of them knowing that you might not get paid for being there. Okay, so how am I supposed to pay my staff? You know, how am I supposed to pay my vendor bill this month? How am I supposed to pay, you know, how are we supposed to pay security or or the light bill? You start to think about these things and then what is the long-term goal? You know, like, are we going to be able to, to make this sustain for 20 and 25 years from now independently? You don't want a large company to have to come in and sweep you out and, and make you what they are because a huge benefit is you being, you know, critical access. So it's being mindful of your resources, you have to be aware of what what's going out the door and what's coming in the door. You have to be able to buckle down and hit that charge master and your charges daily for the maximum amount that that you're capable of, of billing out for that day. There is no room for error. You cannot miss charges. You've, you've got to have them. That is what you're living off of. 
So hopefully, I'm sorry, but hopefully for the long term of things, if everybody could realize that small facilities don't function in the same way financially that larger facilities do, it has to be structured differently. Um, We can't pay the same amount for some supplies, you know, that larger facilities can, which is why a lot of the times we have to get, um, I hate to, you know, vendor drop names and, and company names right now, but you guys know ventilators are expensive. And, and I would love to have, you know, the, the Range Rover version of the ventilators out there. I think everybody would, but, you know, we have to settle for, you know, a Honda and, and that's okay. Cause they still do the same job, but you have to be aware. I feel like you like these challenges. Um, I mean, so what's next for you? I mean, cause I'm assuming that you're going to continue taking on as many challenges as you can. So what are you looking at? What, what's your next few years looking like man I love I love a challenge a little hard work does not scare me at all um a little tough skinned I am but um as full as my plate can be is generally how I like things things to be but uh long term I you know I never imagined myself being um in a c-suite type of position I like bedside I do I like to get my hands dirty I like to know that I'm truly making a difference each day in these patients lives um, and that I can contribute to the staff being able to do their job well. I would love at some point to be maybe a liaison between the C-suite and bedside clinical staff. I think that would be a huge plus um, and position for a lot of facilities to think about having. You know, your your C-suite and your upper administration are passing policies and making rules and you know, doing different things that may not necessarily work bedside, you know, and, and they don't understand it because maybe sometimes they haven't been in a clinical position prior to that. Um, and then, you know, you pass the message along to your, to your staff and then, Hey, this is what we have to do now, or this is the new policy on this and it's not going to work. And it's hard to explain, you know, to, to your CFO, you know, why something is not going to work for you bedside. Or if, you know, they say, hey, we can't buy this. And you're like, no, you don't understand. I have to have that. And you really have to get in there and explain why do you have to have it from a patient care perspective. I would love to be able to be that liaison. So, you know, C-suite is always not where you intend to go. It, it, you might end up just getting pulled in so is that something that you could uh you'd want to take on I can only imagine the answer is yes but like well what would that look like what would I mean I'm excited for you so I definitely wouldn't shy away from it um it would be a new learning game for me being in that type of environment um am I capable of it I absolutely think I am um is it something I think I might want to do every day? I don't know. I think I might want to dabble in it a few days a week and still do my bedside patient care to others. Um, but I also, I never really saw myself being in this position either. Uh, I have always loved just being direct hands-on. I never really envisioned myself being in a director's position, but I have, since I was little, been told that I um, might be bossy but I, I like to say that those are, you know, assertive and leadership skills that that's not the same as being bossy. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know. I think that in smaller facilities like we're in, there is not a large opportunity to climb the ladder like that. So if I was given the opportunity, I would absolutely take it. 
take it hands on and head forward and do it to the best of my ability. All right. Well, I hope your CEO is listening to this. <laughs> I need uh, a raise. No, <laughs> no, but I mean, if you do open the doors for another facility, you never know. I mean, you know, I, I think you, you have what it takes. You do have the assertiveness. You do put in, I mean, you just to join us, you, you got yourself a microphone. I mean, everything you do, you go to the furthest extent to get it done and it shows and it shows in your success. So I congratulate you, um, Matt, Anna. They, I mean, we all just, this, this is a, a really good podcast for us. Um, we, we just had so many good conversations um, and we're all excited for you. Anna. Yeah, Libby, you don't see the sidebar that's going on on the on the live recording. We're on Zoom. There's a, a ton of folks on who are commenting on this. Uh, they're they're just cheering you on. Your CEO messaged me privately and said, "Go, Libby." And uh, I, I guess he was an RT in a past life, so um, I could see that happening. I, I have so we're gonna you know close this up here soon. But I just have one last question. Um, it's really around mentorship. Like, do you have a mentor? you know, to help you get to your next, um, that whatever your next challenge is. And, uh, I asked too, cause we're, we're planning our April episode. We're going to do one on women in, in leadership. And, um, so it, it's in, in my mind right now about, um, mentorship and finding mentors. So just kind of curious what your experience is with that. I, um, when I first moved into this leadership position, I was one of the younger ones on the administrative side of the team and, you know, going in as being younger, Sometimes you don't have the the wealth of knowledge that your older coworkers have. And then sometimes it's like, hey, please listen to me. I really could help on this situation. Um, I was really lucky with some phenomenal women that were um, director of pharmacy at the time. And then our current CNO, man, they lead by example. And, um, you know, that's huge for me. And I'm always watching uh, and I always see the background of, of everything sometimes before I see the initial problem um, or issue. So I, I really and I, the lady that actually hired me as a staff therapist here who was a director at the time, she was tough and um, she was known for being tough. But she did a great job and she held everybody's feet to the fire. And you knew that she was being tough on you, but she was being tough on you because a, she believed in you and, and B, she wanted to make sure that you were doing the best that you could. And she had a standard. And that kind of taught me right then, you have to have a standard um, or, or else you'll just kind of fall to the wayside and everything will just be kind of la-di-da. You have to have a standard to hold people to. And you, then you start noticing, though, that it's not that people were scared of her. They were respecting her. Um, and, and the way that she handled situations and the knowledge that she had. So, you know, I was looking at these women and I was like, hey, you know, that that's what I, I want to be. I want to be somebody that is respected, but I also want to be somebody that, you know, everybody knows that I'll help or, you know, if there's a problem, let's fix it together, you know, be be an example. And I, I have I've been I've been really lucky with some some that I actually haven't told, you know, that that they were uh, somebody that I looked up to. Some I have been able to to tell. But, yeah, I've, I've been looking. I'm all, like I said, I'm always, always watching. I see things that, you know, are in maybe not the forefront. I always see the, the secondary first. 
then I see the forefront. So, so speaking of powerful women, uh, we had Kaylee Dayton on our last episode for A Week of Walking ICU. We have um, her on again the end of the month for a webinar on the financial benefits of an awakened walking ICU. I think that's really cool because um, the lineup we have for this past month and the next month is just female voices. And I think that's really cool. Like this, this podcast builds up the respiratory profession. And I think we're going to showcase not just engaging voices, but uh, diverse voices. So our next episode after that one, so I'll put the link in the show notes on how to register to Kaylee's webinar, but that'll be like a live webinar um, for one CEU or nurse contact hour credit, which we're really excited about. Um, But our next podcast episode, we're going to do uh, our T and RN relationships with uh, Sue McDonald and Kathy Brenner. That's March 23rd. I'll put that link in the show notes so you could register, attend the live event. But Libby, you mentioned that 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 relationship is also crucial to your success. Now, that relationship I'm referring to is RT and RN relationships, not just with your your female powerhouse leaders. But um, yeah, do you mind discussing that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, It's probably one of the most crucial aspects that have to function um, when you are at work and and in high stress environments like ICU and ER and LTAC, um, you know, that's the most important thing. You have to have a relationship, a good relationship at that, you know, with your RNs. You do. You're not a single unit taking care of this patient. You are part of a team and that team has to function at its best ability. That is not going to happen if you don't have some type of report, you know, with your your staff, you have to intermingle. I know we say all the time, we don't come to work to play, you know, and and we don't, but you do have to have fun and you, you know, you have to be able to, you know, go eat lunch with the ER staff or I'm lucky that they include my department in pretty much everything. So birthdays and um, just Saturday lunches because it's the weekend, you have to have that relationship. A, it makes you look forward to coming to work. And it makes you excited that you're going to be with this rotation today. You have something to look forward to. So I encourage, you know, strong, good, fun relationships with your coworkers of all interdisciplinary teams. It's just, man, it will literally take your day and it can make it or it can break it. Libby, if you could if you could Don't come in that. if you could come in the next show and listen in, we would love to get some of your thoughts and being a barfly on on this because Kathy and, and Sue are good friends of RT Sidebar and now you are as well. So you, your participation and hanging out with us would just be phenomenal. So I'll do my best to be there. I know. Right, and and awesome. we had Kaylee as like a nurse as our like last episode. I just think it's so cool to see um, mm-hmm. what is the sidebar expanding past the RT to like greater team dynamics. And so we're really, really excited uh, for these next ones, but um, we are at uh, the hour here. So we love to end our episode with some shout outs. We like to celebrate the profession with shout outs. It's anything we're celebrating, new job, promotion, anniversary, getting into a new school, whatever it is. Libby, do you want to kick us off with some shout outs? Oh man, my staff, y'all, if I could give them the world, I absolutely would past and present. Um, my two that I lost back in January, that stung and I miss them every day. They were great. I hope that 
life is everything that they needed it to be now. Um, I miss them so much. And my Vapo rep, y'all, Joseph Walker is a boss. He is taking care of me every time at the drop of a hat. He's there. He's at least got an answer for me. Man, I couldn't ask for better on that side. And happy birthday to Alicia Lukasik and Dorota McKay. We love our barflies. Rob Fishwick, I'm coming to see you soon up in Elliott, Manchester, New Hampshire. My friend, I'll be there soon to visit and get you on the sidebar. Yeah, and congratulations, Raquel Ariola up at uh, Palmdale Regional. Uh, first joint commission in the director's role. I know it was nervous, but you did a fantastic job. I also want to have a big shout out to Caleb, Caleb Adams out of West Virginia for being such a great barfly. He's been reposting, just keeping the conversation going on LinkedIn. We, we love you. Thank you so much. We can't wait to have you on the show. Vapotherm does not practice medicine or provide medical services or advice. Any clinical recommendations provided herein are solely those of the speaker. Practitioners should refer to the full indications for use and operating instructions of any products referenced before use. The team behind the sidebar are employees of Vapotherm and our guest is not compensated.